0: Good morning. Oh, everyone's in a good mood. Caffeinated, slept well, except for those of you with new babies. You don't know what sleep is. Nothing but a memory this time. Well, uh, as Pastor Lorenzo mentioned, my name is Ryan Smith, and I uh, get to serve as the teaching pastor here. And beyond uh, being a teaching pastor, I'm I'm one of the pastors here at our church. And so what that means is, uh, man... It means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is that I get this incredible front row seat into uh, some of the most profound moments in people's lives. Uh, I get to sit with, with y'all, with, with the community of collective in the midst of uh, the excitement of uh, new births, in the midst of uh, some of those moments of deep, grievous fallout within marriages and relationships or, or the loss of parents. Um, I, I get to sit um, with and experience with uh, each of you. And man, one of the most profound uh, of those moments that I get to experience on a regular basis is those hours leading up to a wedding ceremony. Um, specifically, within the hours leading up to a ceremony, there's this incredible overlap of, uh, on one hand, the, the frenetic busyness Everyone's running around, rushing around, running into each other, making sure that everything's ready to go. The flowers are in place, the playlist has been set, the the dresses are on, and everybody's clothes. We have all of the groomsmen, and like one of them's not like just off and getting lost. Nobody's been to a wedding where that's happened, where the groomsmen disappeared. I have been where uh, he fell asleep in one of the kids' rooms. Um, uh, there was alcohol involved. It was a whole conversation, and I, that's the fun part of also being a pastor. As I get to uh, enter into marriages. Uh, and be a part of, of ones where we, it's, it's mixed company. It's, it's just crazy. But, so on one hand, you have the frenetic busyness of, of the wedding ceremony coming up. And right inside all of that crazy and busyness, you also have this hovering weight of this impending, maybe not doom, but decision. That there is this incredibly big decision, this moment coming that is just hours, and then as the hours wane down, just minutes away, and so there you have people running around, and then you look at the broom, uh, the broom. There's no, there's broom. No the bride or the groom, and and there's just this, this like they're not, they're not present in the midst of everything. They're just, they're totally inside. I, I got to uh, marry Josue and Rachel, and I remember when I first came on the scene uh, where they were getting married this summer, and I just, Josue, he's just walking around. And I was like, hey man, how you doing? He's like, I just need a minute. Like, the whole thing is, e- even the most like optimistic and love blind moving in towards marriage is, is looking for a few minutes to delay the inevitable. Not that, because they don't necessarily want to make the decision, but because it's such a big decision that's right in front of them. Do I really I do. Like this person, this person, that one right there for life. A shared house, a shared bed, a shared bathroom, shared families, like th- that whole thing, all of them f- with all of me. That's what I'm getting myself into here. We we Delay. We, we want time to think it over or maybe just to pretend that it's not coming. Often this comes in the form of a flask with something strong in it, maybe a mimosa, some bridal game. Or in my case, I spent the morning of my wedding watching uh, cartoons on um, Comedy Central. Uh, just getting, getting out of it. Because the whole point is there is such an overwhelming decision that's right here before us. And we just want a little breathing room. And we look for it. So don't let the, the pretty dresses, the flowers, the music distract you. Marriage is a terrifying venture. And as excited as we may be getting up to it, for many of us, as we get down to those final minutes and hours, it really hits us. Oh my goodness, what, am I, what have I gotten myself into? Now, today, as we come to Proverbs chapter 9, we arrive at the wedding day in the book of Proverbs. Over the past two months, as we've been making our way through the past eight chapters, we've been seeing that the book of Proverbs details the way to the good life, a life of abundance and fruitfulness and influence, the sort of life that you want to live, that you can look back at at the end of your life and be excited that that was the one that you lived. That kind of life is found through loving, embracing, and marrying lady wisdom. Now, if you haven't been with us, lady wisdom is this personification of God's wisdom. It's this metaphor that's used to help us think about our lives in a new way. Lady Wisdom is depicted as being strong and smart and beautiful. She's an absolute catch. And unlike many weddings, maybe there's a few in, this is a, a callback to my wife's family being from the South, and I've heard all of these stories that isn't this way. But unlike many weddings, there's not normally another potential bride there at the wedding. In the South, that happens sometimes where somebody decides to show up and she's like, "I, ah, me, pick me. Uh, but that's, that's, that's what's happening actually here in Proverbs 9, we're about to look at. Because it's not just us walking down the aisle to Lady Wisdom. We have set before us a potential bride in Lady Folly. This personification of foolishness who is beautiful and alluring and intoxicating, she offers a life of pleasure for us. She is hard to argue with and even harder to turn from. So over the past few chapters, this metaphor, these two women, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, has been given to us by the authors as a way to help us think differently about our lives beyond just thinking about whether or not I make good decisions or I make bad mistakes. But who or what do I desire? What is my companion in life? Who am I married to? Who lives with me, dwells with me, uh, 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 shares with me all that they are and I share with them all that I am? And Proverbs says you're doing it with either foolishness or with wisdom, lady wisdom or lady folly. It's all that to say today, Proverbs chapter nine, if you wanna turn your way there or tap in your uh, phone Bibles. Proverbs chapter nine is the big day in the book of Proverbs. It is the I do moment. And like any other wedding, the passage is loaded with homes being prepared for a feast and a life of, hap- well, something ever after that's awaiting you. And more than a wedding, like I talked about, this passage, Proverbs chapter 9, the book of Proverbs is less like just a wedding and more like an ancient Israelite bachelor finale rose ceremony where you've got these two women before you and you're the young bachelor there holding the rose and you have to make the decision, who am I going to live my life with? Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly, because to say I do to one is to say I don't to the other. And so after the past eight chapters of getting to know both wisdom and folly, here we are right now. The music is swelling up. The altar sits before us. Delay is no longer an option. Your flask won't save you now. The mimosas, the South Park, it's not gonna save you now. You have the decision awaiting you. And the question is, what are you going to do? Because the choice that we make on the other side of Proverbs 9, what we're about to read today, not just shapes your story entirely, but it also taps you into the overarching story the Bible is telling about humanity. This is an incredibly cosmic story that we're invited into today. Why don't you join me in standing as we read from Proverbs chapter 9? We stand when we read as a simple acknowledgement that what we're reading from is, is something different than, than what we engage with during the rest of the week. It's a, a posture of honor and respect that we are receiving this as, as God's word as Christians regularly hold it. And so with that being said, let's look here at Proverbs chapter nine. The big day is here. Wisdom has built her house and she has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of my wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone shall bear it. Father, thank you for Proverbs chapter nine. Thank you for this whole book and what it's been doing within our community over these past few months. Uh, We ask that as we come to the end of the the prologue of the book today, that you would help us uh, to receive the reality of our lives, that it is a decision and a choice between one of two ways. And God, that we would be able to see the truth of how we relate to these options and what you're inviting us into. In your name we pray, amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. Well, at first glance, the decision actually seems kind of easy when we look at the differences between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. Lady Wisdom, in verses 1 through 3, she's depicted as this hard-working, hospitable woman who is not just has a house, she's built her house. And and not only has she built her house, it's this seven-pillared house. I would be content with a one-pillared house, and she's got seven this is actually most point to a, a, a callback to last week, talking about how Lady Wisdom was with and how God created creation. This seven-dayed creation that here she has a seven-pillared house. This idea being that her home is God's creation. And this is where she's taking up her residency and where she's calling out. And even more than having this incredible house that she lives in and has made, she is hospitable. She set the table. With food and, and wine. And I mean, you're looking in through the front door of this incredible house, and you can just see this large expanse table with all of the food and everything set. And you can smell the backyard. She's got the grill with the skirt steak going. And you see someone in the kitchen who's whipping up the chimichurri, and you're like, oh my gosh, I want to be there. And even more than that, not only has she mailed invites, she has sent messengers this bridal party. You know, she's her uh, in verse three sending out her young women to call from the highest places in the town is she's sent her bridal party out to run through town inviting anyone they can to the wedding feast at Wisdom's house. She's prepped, she's prepared, she's ready to go. Verses uh, 13 and 14, on the other hand, Lady Wisdom, two times it repeats, it says that she's seated. <laughs> Think about the, the, the labor and the work, the hospitable, the preparing of Lady Wisdom, and then two times Lady Wisdom is just kind of sitting you know, on the, on the chair, on the porch, on the front porch. She's not productive. She's comfortable where she is. And not only has she not built her house, in fact, her house, it says, is a facade of of the grave. Folly's house is Sheol. It's the the Hebrew uh, worldview. is the place of the dead, where dead people go. That is Lady, Lady Folly's house. And she has set her table, not with this incredible feast of meat and wine and bread, but this stolen bread, you know, saltine crackers and water. And unlike hospitality, the hospitality of Lady Wisdom sending out the bridal party to all the, invite all they can, Lady Folly uses her one thing that she's got going for it, it sounds like, the fact that she's loud to sit on the stoop of her house and call out like a hot dog vendor at a Dodgers game, hey, anybody who wants some, come on in. So if the two are so stark in their differences there, right, why is this such a hard decision for us? Why is wisdom so hard if this is how it paints it? Because in the midst of their differences, the way that they invite us are actually not just similar. They almost seem uh, not just similar. They're identical. Look at verse 3 and then look at verse 14. Where you see in verse 3 and 14, they both have an identical value of they are calling out from the highest places of the town. And then in verse 4 and 16, again, they have an identical call specifically to the simple, those who lack sense, those who are open and uncommitted, they both invite them to a meal, to a wedding feast. See, the difficulty in discerning between folly and wisdom is that folly masquerades as an alternative, a shortcut, or a loophole to the very things that wisdom is offering us in our lives. Folly is the, the not-quite-there-but-close-enough, like a lukewarm can of Dr. Dazzle or a third, uh, an off-brand version of a GameCube controller, right? Anybody who grew up with brothers in a video game, like, and your parents were like, we're not going to buy the Nintendo-brand controller for all three of you, so one of you is going to get the, like, off-brand, like, Mad Cat's version of the controller. Anybody had this experience? And everybody fights over who doesn't have to have the bad controller because mom and dad said it's close enough. Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom, they look similar enough. They sound and approach and invite us in similar enough ways that that it's difficult for us to ascertain and determine which one is the one that we want. Maybe you felt this in your own life. Maybe big decisions or little. Maybe it was going for the can of Dr. Dazzle or some off brand accessory that you think this is the right thing to buy. And then within a week and a half, it's broken or it's falling apart or you're left wanting. Maybe. This has happened in big decisions in your life. Step by step, feeling like you're doing exactly the wise thing to do. This feels exactly like what I'm meant to be doing. And then at some moment, there's the epiphany, the lights come on, and oh my gosh, what have I done? This is the opposite of what I wanted. This is exactly that experience that Proverbs is teasing out with our lives right here. That, That decision, the choice before us between lady wisdom and lady folly, yes, at one hand, where they go and who they are are so stark and different, and yet, For those just walking about their lives, it's actually quite difficult to see the difference at times because Lady Folly is so good at looking like wisdom. And this right here is exactly where we're invited to see Proverbs. What I want to show us today is inviting our lives and our receptivity to Proverbs 9 as more than just our own choices, our bad mistakes and our good decisions, but tapping us into the grander story that the Bible is telling all the way back to page 1. If we go back to page one of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, we find in the beginning, God by his wisdom, as we saw last week, created a good world with the intent and purpose of getting to partner with humanity as his image bearers. And humans as his image bearers would be his royal representatives. And so he brings Adam and Eve, the first two humans, up to this the highest place, the highest place being this mountain garden of eden and there on the mountain as they're living there in god's presence in the highest place mountain garden of eden god presents humanity with a test a choice of whether they will truly image and reflect him whether they will trust and follow and walk in the way that he's inviting them to and it's signified and set for us as a choice between two trees Now, this choice between these two trees is not the arbitrary test of a cruel God, but it's God working to to, to set before the humans so they can see for themselves and for him is the intent. Will humans trust God to teach them wisdom? This is being signified in eating from the tree of life. Or, though warned that it will only lead to death, will humans follow after the seductive invite of the smooth-tongued serpent? masquerading as an alternative way toward wisdom, toward the good life. One where they can have all that they want in life uh, by leaning on their own understanding, determining right and wrong for themselves, good and bad, or good and evil for themselves, signified in them eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or knowing good and bad. Specifically as it details with the fruit that is pleasant to the eyes. As many of you know the story you saw in the flannel graph maybe growing up, The simple Adam and Eve, their misguided quest for wisdom ends with humanity divided, separated from God. In creating their own wisdom, they actually didn't bring wisdom in life. They spread pain and hurt and violence and death. And there you have it. Welcome to the history of the world 101. All of this leaving unrealized the ideal of a humanity that's united in love and vulnerability, co-ruling with God. Humans, time and again, going back to page 3 of the Bible... When set between the decision of trusting God and allowing him to guide us in right and wrong, good and bad, wisdom and folly, we take the step of choosing to determine it for ourselves because we think that that we can't trust God at the end of the day is what it gets to. And as we do, this is what leads to the fallout. As you are picking good and bad in your eyes and I'm doing it in mine, we see things differently. And there you have it. There's war, there's fallout, there's divorce, there's breakups, there's conflict. And so Proverbs 9, to bring it back to where we're at today, is taking that choice, the garden test, and universalizing it before you and me to see that we are going through that same choice ourselves. How does it do this in the book? Well, just remember back in chapter 3, verse 18, Lady Wisdom is identified as the tree of life, explicitly called the tree of life. The only place outside of Genesis that the tree of life is explicitly mentioned is in the book of Proverbs. Last week in chapter 8, Lady Wisdom talks about how her fruit is better than life. And the way of Lady Wisdom is trusting God with all that we are. Or back to chapter 1, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That often misunderstood, but humble posture that looks to God as the source for wisdom and guidance. The very thing that was missing for Adam and Eve. Lady Folly, on the other hand, has been described time and again with language similar to the tree of the knowing good and bad. She, like the fruit, is forbidden. She, like the fruit of the tree, leads to death. Like the serpent, she is smooth-tongued. She is deceptive and flattering. And she invites us to be wise in our own eyes, to lean on our own understanding for right and wrong. And both wisdom and folly, like the two trees in the garden, invite us to a meal, to eat, to eat that that is the significant mark of whether or not we are going with them is whether or not we will sit and eat from the table with them. You see, Proverbs is pulling together all of this language, even more than that all of them are inviting and calling to us from the highest places of the town. This call back again to the Garden of Eden being this mountain garden of the highest place. So this is where Proverbs chapter nine, alongside being an ancient Israelite bachelor rose ceremony is also an ancient Israelite version of Marvel's What If on Disney+. For those of you that aren't like me and Hudson, and by that I mean you guys are cool because you don't watch shows like this. Does anybody actually watch it? Anybody else in here? Okay, cool. Hey, friends. Let's all hang out later. So for those of you that aren't cool like us, the premise of this silly animated show uh, is that it explores alternate timelines of what would happen like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? If, if major or minor moments would be changed or shifted from how they played out in the movies that we've seen. So what if uh, instead of, you know, Steve Rogers going on to becoming Captain America through the super soldier serum, it actually went to Peggy Carter, and we got Captain Carter instead, and she's awesome. Or what if King T'Challa, you know, Black Panther, he became Star-Lord from Guardians of the Galaxy. Or one of my favorite episodes was just, What If Zombies?, Uh, Or this past week's episode, which examined the problem, actually, of of the God of deism. What happens, the problem with a God who's only the watcher. But that's a sermon for another time. The whole point is, Proverbs chapter 9 is this what if of the Garden of Eden story. But instead of Adam and Eve, it's like this little alternate timeline that Proverbs is setting forward. And it's you standing there buck naked in front of the two trees. And you've got the decision before you. Which one are you going to choose? Because the way that you do will lead to life or death, flourishing and imaging and partnering with God, or all of the fallout that we've seen within the story. Now, the question is why then does Proverbs not just talk about the two trees, the tree of wisdom and the tree of folly? Why do all the talk of talking about these trees as women? Anybody, do you see the question there? That kind of makes sense. Why not just use the tree language? This is because Proverbs, and I'm going to try to go over this quickly, Proverbs in doing the what if is not just doing a what if of the Garden of Eden story for your life, but all of these other tests throughout the Bible story where that decision of do I trust God or do what's right in my own eyes was, happened in real time, not with trees, but with women. So this happened going back to the story of Abraham, if you remember this, with um, his wife Sarah. God's promise that they were going to have this incredibly huge family, and his wife Sarah, she's old. Right? She's old, and she, she has passed her childbearing years. And so the option is, do I trust God with the wife that I have, or do I do what's right in my own eyes, and do I take Tamar over here and start a family line with her? It was the choice between two women, and also the choice between the two trees. Do you see? It was the choice between, do I trust God, or do I do what's right in my own eyes? But that story continues with David and Bathsheba and and his wife, Michael, which of the two. Solomon with the queen of Sheba and his harem of hundreds of wives. Throughout the story of the Bible, it has been the ongoing story. Do I trust God or do I do what's right in my own eyes? And do I take what I want for myself or do I allow God to freely give me what he sees as fit? And this is the story that's been playing out. It's happened with trees. It's happened with wisdom. It happened with Achan and the spoils of a military battle. It's the same story that's been playing out over and over again. And Proverbs here says that's not just all the way back there back then. That same test, that same choice is happening right now in your life. You are there in the garden. You are there with Bathsheba. You are there with Sarah and Tamar. And the decision is for you. Are you going to trust God Or are you going to determine right and wrong for yourself in the way of foolishness? And so you may roll your eyes in reading the Bible at Adam and Eve's ignorance of uh, Abraham's stupidity, of Solomon or David's lust. How could they? Proverbs 9 says, look at your life and you will find the answer. The seductive appeal of folly, of the invitation of these loopholes, alternatives, and shortcuts is alluring and seductive. So this is the what-if of the garden story. Your life is the what-if of the entire Bible story and the countless of tests that have been faced by men and women. It's playing out in your life right now as well. How does this appear? Uh, uh, Verse 6 of chapter 9 summarizes this really well for us, that the test of the two ladies, of the two trees, is restated as the test of the two ways. Verse 6 says, Our invitation from wisdom is to leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Leave the simple way and walk in the way of insight. Will we partner with God by trusting him, walking in his insight and his wisdom, so we might truly live in this human ideal, or like Adam and Eve, will we continue in the trajectory in the way of the simple? The choice, the decision is before you. Right now, there is some decision, some choice in your life, and that is the very decision that's before you. Because your life, as the culmination of your days, as the end of your life is your choice. You are the amalgamation of all of the little and big decisions and choices that you make over your life. And at some point, when when the clock strikes zero, whether that's 80 or that's next week or whenever, that then is what solidifies that was your choice. That was the decision that you made. That was the tree that you went with. Proverbs is inviting you to ask, in my life, in those little and big decisions of my words that I use, what I do with my money and my wealth, my actions, my relationships, in the midst of conflicts at work or within the church— with the questions that I have, the comfort that I'm looking for, the discomfort that I'm facing, the marriage that I'm in or the marriage that I want within my singleness or my parenting or our infertility, within my sexuality, my pleasure, my pain, my losses, my wins, my doubts, my certainties, in each and every single one of them, the two trees are before you, the two women, the two ways. And Proverbs is saying, you need to see these rightly. Life is a choice between two ways, lady wisdom or lady folly. The tree of life, trusting in God's wisdom and trusting in who God is, or the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. We choose to determine right and wrong for ourselves, to trust in ourselves. Verses 7 through 9, if you want to look back with me then, gives us the grading system for the test. In the context, did you notice we're kind of like talking about, we have lady wisdom, lady folly, and then seven through nine is kind of this like, don't rebuke a scoffer because he might hit you and also be nice to wise people, right? Like what's going on here? The whole point is in the context is this is less about you knowing whether or not to correct other people, but you being able to determine if you're a wise person or a wicked person. It's about you asking, what do I do when I'm corrected? What do I do when I receive instruction? So the grading test asks, the litmus test is, how do you respond to God's invitation to wisdom? His call to leave your present way as being simple, which nobody wants to hear. The passing grade in verse eight through nine is for those identified as being wise and righteous. They respond with that correction, with love and a desire to walk fully within wisdom's way, no matter the test before them. Or verse seven and eight details for us failing grade those who respond with when they hear correction either from god or from his word or from his people not with love but, but with abuse and injury even if it's not physical we they lash out against it they hate it is the word that proverbs use they hate that correction they hate that invitation that someone would say the way that i'm walking presently is simple And so they justify, they defend, they excuse, they blame shift, just like Adam and Eve, their simple way. And those who are in this way, it is a simple pass-fail test. Are those Proverbs identifies as being the wicked or the scoffer? Now, the scoffer is a word we don't use regularly, but Dominic Hernandez summarizes it well. You'll see it behind me in his book on Proverbs. He says, the scoffer are those who take a step in the wrong direction by rejecting the Lord's instruction. This determination to spurn instruction then facilitates a refusal of being corrected. Upon rebuffing correction over and over, these people fall further away from wisdom, eventually arriving at the point where there is no concern for the word of the Lord or for the desire to say yes to the Lord. Distant from the Lord and not particularly interested in listening to anyone or anything related to wisdom, these people exclusively live in service of their own desires." They do what is right in their own eyes. Those who live a life driven by their own desires, irrespective of the Lord's word or people, move further away from wisdom and life and deeper into folly, disorder, destruction, and even ultimately death. There is no middle ground, Proverbs tells us, between this. There's no gray. It's pass or fail. But the challenge is, is when we look at our lives, our lives doesn't feel this stark, does it? I know a couple of people that are like hard, that, that are like definitely the scoffer, but as I look at my life or my, the, my, those people that I'm close to and my friends, I, I, I feel far less like that and more it's just complicated. Do I receive or reject wisdom in my life? Yes. All of the time, yes. And see, Proverbs, the Bible as a whole isn't ignorant of that very tension. that our lives are marked with moments of trust and wisdom and goodness but we also regularly and repeatedly fail. At best, if it's a pass-fail, we ping-pong back and forth on a weekly, daily, hourly basis between wisdom and folly, between the way of life and the way that just leads to disorder and destruction. And this is why I think Proverbs' marriage metaphor is really, really helpful in us determining this why its personification of folly as an adulterous woman ensures that we understand the pass-fail nature of the test. If I am faithful to my spouse some of, or even most of the time, if I ping-pong between my wife or my spouse and someone else, there, there is no B grade on that. There's no C's get, or is it D's get degrees on this. It is one or the other. And so if I am not fully faithful to wisdom, then I have never actually fully chosen her. I have never truly left my simple ways, but I have had folly as my like, you know, side girl that I hit up at, you know, late at night, like, you up. Every now and then, yeah, I want enough wisdom in my life that I don't blow up my life, but I also, I don't really, those are few areas in my life that I really actually don't trust God when it comes to these things. And I, I like to keep Lady Folly around for just that. This is the tension that Proverbs 9 sets it before us, though, is we can't play around in the space of kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly good. I'm mostly a wise person. Proverbs says, you, you've married one of two people. You have given yourself to one of two people. It is a pass-fail test. And if you ping-pong, that's a failure. Proverbs, before we move into the rest of the book, Proverbs is stopping right here at the end of the prologue with this hard word it requires us to look at our lives and actually see how desperately we are in need for wisdom, for life, and for an ability to be faithful beyond what we're able to be faithful to. Honestly, what it would look like is what humans, what we're desperate for is somebody, someone who could fully and entirely and actually pass that test. Somebody who we just, we can't get back into the garden, we can't get back into re-knitting that relationship with God. Someone who would be able to re-knit that partnership between humanity and God to kick that back online again and then be able to help us walk in how to actually do that now. Proverbs leaves us no space other than somebody coming and filling that category. Because I don't know about you, but I, I ping pong. And if, if I, need, I need true, faithful walking in wisdom, then it, it's definitely not gonna be me that's gonna re-knit this thing. I, I need somebody else to come in and, kickstart this, to show me how to choose wisdom. Or as Genesis 3 said, after the fallout of humans choosing from the tree of knowledge of good and bad, someone who would crush the serpent and his lies, someone who would uproot the tree of folly and death and bring humanity back into the garden, back to the tree of life. Or as Proverbs 9 verse 11 says, someone who by their faithfulness to wisdom would bring us the multiplication of our days and adding years of life to us, abundant Everlasting, overflowing life. They would give us the tree of life. This is what we need. And 2,000 years ago, it should be no surprise being here at Collective, a Christian church, 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth, we believed, emerged on this story. And as the gospel writers tell us, when he began his earthly ministry, when he started getting things going, he started by being led out into the wilderness where Mark's gospel tells us he was surrounded by the wild animals. There's no purpose of talking about the wild animals in the story other than Mark's trying to wink at us and tell us it's the what if of the Garden of Eden story again. But now instead of you and me, Jesus is there standing with the decision. And there he is just like us and just like Adam and Eve with the serpent is flattered and tempted and seduced by a sinister, seductive, smooth-tongued creature who brings him to the highest place, offers him a pleasant feast, and offers him all that God was already planning for him, honor and worship and power, but all of it through shortcuts, loopholes, and alternatives from ever having to trust in God. But in this garden, what if... Jesus trusts God. He refuses Folly's temptation. And on the other side of that, he starts emerging proclaiming that the kingdom of God is now at hand. The kingdom of God, the the garden ideal of humans ruling with God in this world, this is being kicked off once again. Even more, Jesus then begins making claims that not only is he God's wisdom incarnate, but he is God himself in the flesh. He is now God come back to re-knit the partnership between God and humans by becoming a human to re-knit the partnership, to put things back to right again, to get this story going in the right direction once again. And later in Jesus's life, he goes to pray with his friends and God commissions him to go up to Jerusalem and give up his life. And so Jesus goes. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus takes his friends and went to where else but a garden. And he told his disciples to pray because tonight is the great test. And there in the garden, he prayed, Father, let this pass test from me, but not my desire. Rather, may your desire be done. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus shows us what passing the test looks like. He trusts God's wisdom. He loved others more than himself. And he confronted evil with good, even though it cost him his life. And this brings him then to the cross, regularly called the tree of death where the life of God was nailed to the tree of humanity's distrust and self-trust, which always and only leads to chaos and death, offered up as a sacrifice to cover for all of our failed tests right by going to that same tree. All the failed tests of Adam and Eve, of all the people of Israel, all of humanity, of yours and mine. And then in his death and resurrection, Jesus sacks Folly's grave. He, he goes and, and brings out life. And, and now that what was formerly the tree of death through his cross has become the tree of life. Where now we look to Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Jesus, as the one with whom we receive wisdom and the life of God. And all are invited by him, just like Lady Wisdom's call, to come to eat of my bread and drink of my wine to receive his broken body and shed blood in the bread and the cup as as his prepared feast like wisdom made. His prepared feast that is the fruit of the new tree of life, this new uh, wedding feast that becomes the means through which we receive and find the multiplication of our days, the adding of the years to our life, like Proverbs 9 says, where we have the hope and joy of a life of resurrection that's breaking into our lives right here and right now. All of this, we could argue, is being summarized in Proverbs 9, verse 10, where it said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That humble posture before God, what Adam and Eve didn't have in the garden, what you and I honestly don't have, when we make those decisions of folly, again, fear of the Lord, often misunderstood, but that humble posture which looks to God as you are the creator, and I'm trusting you to be the source of what I need to live into right now. That's the beginning of wisdom. And it says the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The knowledge of the Holy One, not just God is our creator, but God is the one revealed in Jesus. the Revealed in, in the crucified and resurrected Jesus, who is now, you could say, he is the tree of life. He now is our, our wedded wisdom. And so this is, this is what Proverbs 9, in the early church, they understood all of this to be building up to, is you and I have a test before us. And our lives, we have shown, the trajectory so far is, if the, if the test were to be pencils down today, it would not be a passing grade. And the invitation of Jesus is that in him, all of your failures, all of your breakdown, that, that there is a, a, somebody else's passing grade that can sit over yours. And so when you fail, man, you've got, a, you've got an A plus already over you. But then even more than that, you've also got the answers to the test now that you can kind of walk through and fill out as you go through your life. Set between the decision of trusting God. I mean, I look to the gospels and I look to the stories of Jesus. I look to the scriptures that Jesus identified as being his. This this is what it now means. And so this is amazing, but this doesn't mean that everything is going to go great in our lives. We are going to face our own tests. We're going to continue to face these tests in our lives. And in fact, Jesus said that every generation of his followers is going to have their own difficult and awful, painful tests which will force them to trust God in new ways. The tests that you're going through, everything that we're experiencing right now on a global, on a local, on a personal scale, does not surprise God. And Jesus says that somehow, in the, in the, without getting into the complex mess of, of, of God's being, being at work within the brokenness of this world, these are all opportunities and tests for us to radically image and partner with God in new ways by trusting in him. On a local, local, personal, whatever that may be. And like I said, through Jesus' passing of the test, we now have forgiveness amid our failure. But even more than that, we're able to face whatever the test is that you feel like is before you right now. You're able to face that as coming from a good God and as an opportunity to image and partner with him in radically new ways. This is why James, the leader in the early church, said that we should be grateful when we face tests and trials because they offer us a gift. These tests offer us a gift because it's an opportunity to surrender to God's wisdom, to become more like Jesus, the one who loved us and who passed the test on our behalf. So as we close... Here's the thing. Whether you have been a follower of Jesus for years or this is your first Sunday in a church in years or the first ever, that same invitation is set before us today. It's set over our entire lives, which means it's set over us in every single moment of our lives. And today we're just calling attention to it. That the way to the good life, the way to wisdom is not by you trying harder and trying to be wise in the midst of your tests your story so far should give you enough evidence that that's not going to work. Because our, our lives, like every human life shows us, that at best we ping pong. The invitation of Proverbs 9, that, that as we see it within the whole story that the Bible is telling, is an invitation to receive the awaited Jesus to receive his passing of the test in our place. His invitation to now dine and commune and live with him to allow his passing of the test to become our passing of the test, to allow his life to become ours, his wisdom to become ours. And based off the fact that he went to the cross, died and resurrected for us, that no matter the test before us, we can always assume at the deepest level that whatever I'm facing, that these originate in a God who is good and has my best They are not not coming from some capricious God, like a child with a magnifying glass chasing after ants, but a God who's inviting us into a deeper, more full partnering and reflecting of him. And so the invitation for all of us today is to receive Jesus, his passing of the test, his wisdom, his righteousness, and his life to become your own. That he has set the table and is inviting you to dine with him, to know him and to receive him.